Now, over the past month, all of the ground that we've covered in James has been related to how Christians are to respond to trials and the ways that we can stand firm in the midst of the testing that God puts us through. But now as we come to verse 19, notice that James changes the subject from trials and how we ought to think about them and how we ought to respond. And he moves on to how we ought to obey the word of God. However, we should realize that while James technically changes the topic from trials to obedience, depending on how you look at those issues, he's actually staying on topic. When you read through James' letter, what you see is that he has a focus on right Christian character. That is to say that James, his writing, places strong emphasis on how believers behave. And so while trials and obedience can be seen as distinct topics, we should all recognize that the two topics can and are placed within this broader context of godly Christian character or godly Christian behavior. And so everything we looked at prior to today was about the character of the godly man or woman as it related to being under trial and tested. And today we shift to the character of the godly man or woman as it relates to their obedience to God's word or to God's law. In both cases, godly Christian character and behavior is in view. So, with regard to trials, believers were to respond joyfully to them and then stand firm under them as they resisted the temptation to sin. And now, as it relates to obeying God's word, believers are to behave in a way that is in keeping with the word as they live as those who accept it as opposed to living as those who reject it. So James is going to spend the next nine verses exhorting his brethren to both hear and do the word of God. And to let godly behavior be the evidence of genuine faith. So that was just to give you all an orientation of where we are now in James' letter. We're shifting from trials to obeying God's word. Yet this is all in the context of godly Christian character. Now it will help us if we can further smooth out this transition in our minds. James doesn't just make an abrupt uh, switch from one topic to the next, but he links them together such that we can more easily see how they're related. I want you to think back to last week. Our big idea then was that God gives good gifts to his children. He intends to do us good and he cannot be tempted or drawn away from his promised intent to sanctify us and then glorify us along with Christ. We also saw that God is wise beyond our understanding and that the same wisdom that created the universe in all of its complexity and beauty, that same wisdom is the wisdom that shapes and molds us through the hardships and trials that we endure. And finally, we saw that God's plan to make us into perfectly sinless heirs of the kingdom with Christ cannot be foiled because his plan is rooted in his sovereign will. Go back to verse 18. Let's read it. It says, Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, I didn't expand on this last week, but notice that James tells us the means by which God and his sovereignty glorifies us. He tells us the means by which God makes us preeminent among all that he has made. He says, we were brought forth by the word of truth. So you see, after all that we have said about trials and how they function in God's plan to build endurance in us and to refine us and shape us into the image of Christ, let us not forget that without the word of truth, trials could not have had this sanctifying effect on us. 
If the heat of trials progressively burns away the filth that clings to us, so that what is left is pure gold, then trying to apply this heat to a heart that has not accepted the word of truth would be like trying to refine a lump of pure brass and thinking that after all the brass is melted, that pure gold will be left. There was no gold in the brass to begin with. Without the word of truth, there would be nothing good in us to refine. Indeed, without the word of truth, any test that we face would be failed. And so being unable to stand firm, as verse 12 said, we would all fall away and we would not obtain the crown of eternal life. And so for all the good that God does for us in and through trials, the word of truth is that which underlies and enables us to be positively affected by those trials. So know then that when James goes on to talk about the implanted word in verse 21, being doers of the word in verse 22, the perfect law and the law of liberty in verse 25, know that he is talking about the word of truth. He's talking about that word of truth that was introduced in verse 18. So this emphasis on obeying the word of truth has not come out of nowhere, but James has told us that underlying God's plan to sanctify us through trials has always been the word of truth that brought us forth and saved us from our sin. So that's the smooth transition or the flow of James' logic. When trials come, know that God is doing good to you because he, as a good father, only gives to you that which is good. It is his intent to glorify you along with Jesus, and that is why he saved you by the word of truth. So now, be careful to obey that word. And before I go on, I don't want to just take it for granted that everyone listening knows what the word of truth refers to. So simply put, the word of truth is the gospel. It is the good news of how Jesus Christ, being God, became a man and lived the perfect life. Whereby, he offered to God the Father the obedience that we could not offer because of our sin. And after living that perfect life, he went willingly to the cross after being beaten and mocked. This was so that he could die in our place and bear the punishment that we deserve for our sins. And after being dead for three days, he rose to life again, showing that he had conquered death. And after appearing to many, he ascended to heaven, where he now sits at the right hand of God the Father, making intercession for us. Because of all of this, it has been made possible for mankind to, mankind to be reconciled to God. It is no longer the case that man must be separated from God because of his sin. Because Jesus has satisfied God's wrath on behalf of those who believe in him, man and God can once again be in a right relationship instead of being enemies. And more than this, those who believe these things about who Jesus is and about what he has done, they have been given eternal life and will live forever with God. And so now, men and women are to respond to this with obedience and righteous living. This is the good news or the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the word of truth. It is these words or the words of this specific message that has the power to save a man or woman from eternal death. So long as this word is believed and obeyed. This is how it is that James can say that we Christians have been brought forth by the word of truth. For it was the word working in our hearts that gave us new birth and new life. This is why Paul could say in Romans that he was eager to preach the gospel to them also who were in Rome. Why? Because he was not ashamed of the gospel. 
For it is what? It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And so understanding all of this, we should easily be able to see why this word of truth ought to be obeyed. Because the truth of the gospel is weighty and it is powerful. It does work. James says in verse 21 that it is able to save our souls. So again, James seeks obedience to the gospel and godly Christian behavior from his audience. But James recognizes that he first needs to prime his audience for the task of accepting and obeying the word of truth. He says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, by way of analogy, some of you might know that if you want to paint a surface, whether it's wood or metal, you first have to make it ready by sanding it so that the paint will cling to the surface. Well, James is doing something like that with verse 19 and 20. He is preparing us to be able to receive or accept or cling to the word of truth. How do we know this? We'll look at the very first word of verse 21. It says, therefore. That word therefore is very important. Because when you see therefore, you automatically know that what is about to be said depends directly on what has been said before. Well, in verse 21, James exhorts us to receive the implanted word. So we know that receiving the implanted word depends directly on what was said before. And as we can see, what was said before was that believers need to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. So in other words, we can say that in order to receive the word and obey it, believers must be teachable and meek. James seeks to sand away our rough exterior, which can be prone to stubbornness, pride, and anger, in order to leave behind a surface, so to speak, that will be ready to accept the word of truth. And so that's our big idea this morning. In order to receive the word and obey it, believers must be teachable and meek. So let's take some time now to understand why this is the case. It should come as no surprise to us that the word of God needs to be taught. And specifically, the word of truth or the gospel needs to be taught. No one here was born knowing the gospel. Each of us had to learn it from somewhere. Whether we were told by someone or heard it on the radio or TV or even read it for ourselves in a book, we all needed to be taught the word of truth that saved us. Romans 10, 14 says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So you see how it works. In order to believe the gospel, you first need to learn about it. And in order to learn about it, someone needs to teach it to you. Again, someone either has to tell it to you or someone has to write a book or something. This is the way that God has chosen to operate throughout history. He communicated truth to mankind by speaking through his prophets and apostles. And that truth was written down so that it could be preserved through time and space and then taught to men and women. This is why we can find several commands in scripture to teach the word. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And then Psalm 51, 10 to 13 says, 
Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Titus 2, 1 to 8. Titus 2. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Exodus 18.20 And you shall warn them about the statutes and laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Deuteronomy 6, 6-7 And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. So as you can see, there is clear scriptural emphasis on teaching the commands of God. And so being taught the word of God is so important to the life of the Christian. Therefore, you can see how important it is for Christians to be teachable and meek. This is because someone who is teachable is, of course, easily able to be taught. Someone who is teachable possesses certain characteristics and traits that make the reception of instruction easy. Thus we can see why meekness is mentioned as the manner in which we are to receive the word. Meekness is defined as being mild of temper, soft or gentle, not easily provoked or irritated, yielding, given to forbearance and injuries. You see that definition describes exactly the kind of believers that James would have us be. Again, because someone who has those characteristics will be easy to teach. Allowing the word of truth to have its way in their life. James tells us that we are to be the kind of people who are quick to hear and slow to speak. We are to be the kind of people who are humble and don't think that we know everything. And to make this point clear, all we need to do is imagine someone who on the other hand is slow to hear and quick to speak. Such a person believes that they already know everything and so why bother hearing what someone else has to say? Instead, such a person is boorish and constantly talking as if everyone else simply has to hear what they have to say. Such a person is self-important and prideful. And so James is telling us that these kinds of people are not the sort who are teachable and meek. These kinds of people do not easily accept instruction. These kinds of people are not easily taught. And so even when it comes to hearing and receiving the, instru the instruction of Scripture, they resist and are thus disobedient to the word of God. Furthermore, James says that we are to be slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Well, remember our definition of meekness. Well, part of that definition is that meek people have mild tempers and are not easily provoked or irritated. They don't get angry quickly. So as far as being the kinds of people who are always ready to receive the word, we should be able to see why being slow to anger would be a good thing. For one thing, having control over one's temper makes one approachable. People feel as though they can come to you and talk to you, especially about the Word of God. And this is important because who wants to have a potentially hard conversation about the Word with a person who has a short fuse and is always ready to explode in a fit of anger? Assuming for a second that you aren't, Already easily uh, you are already an easily irritated person. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of someone who is. Now you're a sinner like everyone else. You make mistakes like everyone else. 
You have errors in the way that you think and behave just like everyone else. But praise God, the instruction of Scripture is there to correct you and help you mature. And God has also given you brothers and sisters in your life for accountability and for rebuke to help you stay on the right path. But here's your problem. No one wants to talk to you because anytime a point of critique is brought to your attention, or anytime a charge of sin is laid at your feet, no matter how gently that charge is made, you respond with irritation and anger. And rather than listening patiently to see if there's any merit to what your brothers and sisters are saying, you interrupt, being quick to speak and slow to listen. As you can imagine, this is not good for you. It's not good for your own spiritual health. Because we all need correction. We all need to be taught. But if no one is willing to engage you because of how you behave and how unteachable you are, you will miss out on this much needed function of church life. So what I'm saying is that being easily angered did not lend itself to the kind of atmosphere that should exist in the church. And when I say the church, I don't mean in this building. I mean among the brothers and sisters that make up the church. So an environment where no one is willing to listen and is quickly triggered, and it's not good for our sanctification. Because we need to be able to be corrected and taught. Now there are two caveats to this point. To those believers who have the difficult task of engaging a brother or sister who is quick to speak and slow to listen, or is easily angered, I want you to know that you don't have the right to disengage from them forever because of how they behave. Now it may become necessary to disengage during a conversation that has become heated so that heads can cool off. But eventually, if you continue to see sin in your brother or sister's life, you can't perpetually leave them to it. If they have upset you with their behavior, Jesus tells us that we are to forgive one another over and over and over again. No matter how many times our brother or sister sins against us, we must forgive them. No matter how unpleasant engaging them may be. Remember that Paul tells us that we are to bear with each other. Colossians 3.13 says, Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. You still have a duty to help your unteachable brother or sister. Yes, it will be hard, but doing hard things has been our theme so far in James, has it not? Dealing lovingly with our easily angered brethren is just another trial for us. And one that we can be sure will lead to sanctification and growth for all involved. We should remember that the word of truth has power. If God through his word can make the dead live, and he can make the blind see and the lame walk, he can certainly teach the unteachable. So let us not be the sort who disengage, but the sort who are willing to bear with each other as we bring the word of truth into each other's lives. And now for the second caveat. Just because one of your brethren brings a point of correction to you, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're correct in their assessment. Sometimes, well-meaning brethren say you did something wrong, they attempt to bring God's word to bear on you. But when you assess their claims in the scriptures that they bring, you find that they're not really correct in their assessment. These things are going to happen. So don't feel that I'm saying that in order to be quick to listen and slow to speak, that you must agree with everything that someone else says. What I am saying, though, is that we ought to be charitable with each other and hear each other out with gentleness. After someone tells you, you know, Tevin, what you did was wrong, you can say, okay, I hear you, bro, I hear you, sis. 
I'm going to think about what you said, I'm going to pray about it, I'm going to consider the scriptures that you brought to me. And I'll get back to you. I'll earnestly think about these things. That's the gentle response to being corrected, even when you realize that the point of correction wasn't really right. And I say to those attempting to break correction, once you've done so, leave it there. Give people time to digest what you've told them. Don't expect them to change on the spot. People take time to grow because sanctification is a process. So if we go about things in this way, we're going to have a lot more peace in the church. Meekness and a teachable attitude rather than anger and stubbornness will help produce the kind of righteous behavior that God wants from us. So then, James says from verse 21, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Remember what our big idea is. In order to receive the word and obey, we must be teachable and meek. So once we make ourselves teachable and meek, having adjusted our attitudes, and uh, well, rather having adjusted our attitudes to being people who are quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger, then we will more easily receive the word of truth and become more and more obedient to it. It is then that we will start to see godly Christian character and behavior in our lives. As according to James, we put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. So I want to tell you that the, the imagery that is being evoked here by James is that of someone who is wearing many disgusting clothes and he's covered in filth. Now that person is taking those clothes off and getting rid of them. That's what James means by put away all filthiness. So James here is using filthy clothes as a metaphor for the moral filth that is present in our lives by way of our sinful behavior. These are the works of the flesh that came to define us in our old lives under sin. And so James is saying that in light of the fact that we have been brought forth to newness of life by the word of truth, we cannot continue in those old sins. We must put them off or take them off as we receive instruction in godliness from God's word with meekness. So again, our obedience to God in taking off, so to speak, our sinful deeds is directly related to our ability to receive the word with meekness. So our receptivity to God's word is fundamental. Now, in the New Testament, when the imagery of putting off dirty clothes is used with regards to ceasing sinful deeds, most of the time, what follows next is the continuation of the metaphor with a call for believers to put on righteousness. So you take off the dirty clothes, you put on the clean clothes. And this refers to a change from doing wicked deeds to doing righteous deeds. But notice here that James does not continue the metaphor. Instead, he wants to lay a foundation for his audience's obedience to the word. He wants to lay a foundation for their pursuit of deeds of righteousness. And so he switches immediately from the imagery of dirty clothes being taken off to the imagery of receiving something. Picture yourself gladly receiving a precious gift. When it is brought to you, you are glad and you are eager to have it. Well, the word of God, specifically the gospel, with all of its instructions and implications and wisdom, is to be received as a precious gift. And this is as opposed to being received begrudgingly and with animosity. And it is to be received with meekness. Meekness as opposed to pride. 
within the imagery of receiving a gift that James is using. I want you to imagine again yourself receiving a gift from someone. Let's say it's a brand new smartphone. And as a person is offering it to you, you stop them and you immediately pull out your old beat-up phone from six or seven years ago. The screen is cracked, the buttons are falling off, you know, it's held together by tape. And you proudly and defiantly say, what I already have is better than what you're giving me. No, it's not. But you see, this is what we do in our arrogance and pride when we fail to receive the word with meekness, thinking instead that we know better. And James is showing us that when we are not teachable and meek and don't easily receive instruction from the word with all of its guidance and wisdom, we will not be able to put off or take off the filth of our sinful behavior. Friends, one cannot do righteous deeds in spirit and truth without receiving or believing or submitting to or loving the word of God. Furthermore, James uses the imagery of the gift of the word being a seed. He says that we are to receive the implanted word. And this seed, this word, is planted deep within the heart soil of the believer and it grows and it affects the whole body, affecting it and bringing forth the fruit of righteous deeds. It brings those deeds to the surface. And James likely used this imagery to bring to mind the great new covenant prophecy found in Jeremiah 31. As Jeremiah notes the failure of the Israelites to obey the terms of the old covenant, he announces to them that God would make a new covenant with them. And a major part of that new covenant would be that God would place it on their hearts. He would write this new covenant on their hearts, so to speak. So listen as I, as I uh, give you a quote from Bible commentator Douglas Moon. And I quote, The repeated failures of Israel to obey the law that God gave them had made it clear that the human heart was not capable of submitting to external rules. A new interior work would have to be done, giving people a new heart so that they could respond truly and obediently to God's word. James' language reminds his readers that they have experienced the fulfillment of that wonderful promise. But it also reminds them that the word that has saved them cannot be dispensed with after conversion. God plants it within his people, making it a permanent, inseparable part of the believer a guiding and commanding presence within, end quote. Brethren, the glad receiving and acceptance of the word of truth does not end when you get saved. It's not a one-time thing. No, it's a continual accepting and receiving. Because as you go through life, you will need the truth of the gospel in order to grow and mature. As you strive to have the holiness without which anyone will see the Lord, you will need the correcting and teaching of the gospel in your life. Listen also to what Peter says about our continual need for the gospel. 1 Peter 1, 14-19 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So James and Peter are fundamentally making the same point. The means by which you can be an obedient child of God and not be conformed to the passions of your former life and be holy as God is holy is by knowing 
or believing or receiving that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. And not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of the Lamb without blemish or spot. This is the gospel. The precious gift or the implanted word. This is the word of truth that is able to save your souls. Knowing and receiving this precious word is what produces obedience in our lives. So we must remember this as we go forward in the next coming weeks, as James uh, seeks to make us obedient. Tells us to be not only hearers of the word, but doers of the word. So brothers and sisters, the points of application this morning are these. Determine to be teachable and meek in your attitude and in your behavior. Remember that in order to receive the word of God and obey it, you must be teachable and meek. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Allow yourself to be taught and corrected by the word, knowing that it is able to save your souls. Prime yourself for obedience with meekness and humility. Lay a foundation of glad acceptance of God's word and then build your obedience upon that foundation. 